I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Deborah Friedel. I'm a contributing editor at the London Review of Books, and I'm here with the writer Adam Thurwell. He's a novelist, most recently of The Future Future, and he's also written for the LRB, most recently for the LRB about the writer Bruno Schultz. Adam, thank you for coming. Not at all. It's wonderful to be here. I met Adam a few weeks after I first moved to England, almost 20 years ago, and you know, immediately we started having a conversation about the differences between British Jews and American Jews, the American Jewish novel versus the British Jewish novel versus the European Jewish novel. So when the LRB asked me to do a podcast with one of our contributors, I realized what I most wanted to do is continue the conversation we've been having for a very long time. So I think often when we're discussing the 20th century big American novel, we find ourselves ending with a conversation or a fight about Philip Roth. And I thought this time we would just start there. So, Adam, Philip Roth is probably best known for his novels set in Newark, New Jersey, where he grew up in a dense, working-class, very Jewish neighborhood. His characters would sometimes make it as far as the fancier New Jersey suburbs, as in his first book, the novella Goodbye Columbus, which was published in 1959. He has at least long stretches of novels set in New York City and in pretty college campuses outside the city. Sometimes his characters make aliyah, they go to Israel. But he also wrote a fair amount about England. You know, for a decade, starting in 1977, he spent about six months a year here, mainly in London, in Chelsea, near the King's Road, where he lived with his girlfriend, who became his wife, then his ex-wife the British actress Claire Bloom. So Adam, you and I both recently reread Roth's novel, The Counterlife, published in 1986. And toward the end of that novel, there's a scene in which the Roth stand-in, the celebrated Jewish-American writer Nathan Zuckerman, is in a smart London restaurant with his wife, an Englishwoman who's decidedly not Jewish. And I confess this scene has haunted me for years. And I'm going to read out part of it because I really want to ask you about it. It was while we were eating our dessert that I heard a woman loudly announcing, in exaggerated English tones, isn't that perfectly disgusting? When I turned to see who'd spoken, I found it was a large, white-haired, elderly woman at the end of our banquet, no more than ten feet away, who was finishing her dinner beside a skeletal old gentleman I took to be her husband. Suckerman had just reached out to touch his wife's cheek, nothing bold, no alarming public display of carnality, and yet when I turned and saw that we were still pointedly being stared down, I realized what had aroused this naked rebuke, not so much that a man had tendered his wife a tiny caress in a restaurant, but that the young woman was the wife to this man. 
as though a low-voltage shock were being administered beneath the table, for she had bitten into something awful, the elderly white-haired woman began making odd, convulsive little facial movements, seeming in some kind of sequence, as though flashing coded signals to an accomplice. She drew in her cheeks, she pursed her lips, she lengthened her mouth, until unable apparently to endure any further provocation, she called out sharply for the head waiter. He came virtually on the run to see what the trouble was. Open the window, she told him, again in a voice that no one in the restaurant could fail to hear. Open a window. You must open a window immediately. There's a terrible smell in here. Is there, madam? He courteously replied. Absolutely. The stink in here is abominable. I'm terribly sorry, madam. I didn't notice anything. I don't wish to discuss it. Please do as I say. And then Zuckerman turns to his wife and says, I am that stink. So Adam, help. You know, what's going on here? Well, it's true that when I first read The Council Life, which I think I always thought of as my favorite Roth novel, it was slightly marred for me as British Jewish reader, novelist, that this scene to me felt, certainly on my first reading of it, completely unbelievable. And some kind of fantastical, wrong-headed kind of illusion about what Britain is and what America is or what American Jewishness is and what a British Jew is. So for me, it was a real problem. And then I think it's interesting on rereading it, I'd forgotten as well that he actually self-critiques the passage um, because this novel, The Cancer Life, is based on so many different layers and kind of chapters that cancel each other out. And um, one of these layers is that Maria, the young wife, has read this draft that we then, that the, before the reader sees it, and Maria says, you know as well as I do that this never happened and would never happen. And so, you know, why did you need to invent this kind of grotesque anti-Semitic incident, you know, to make your point about Britain or about me or my marriage? And now, though, I think there is something rather wonderful about this passage. And it certainly, I guess for me, crystallizes something that has always been there in my very I guess, complicated relationship to Jewishness and within my family where, you know, I grew up in a very assimilated Jewish family or my heart was half Jewish. So my, my mother is Jewish and her family were very assimilated. And to the extent that my mother had married out. But what I would often have arguments about would be the degree of anti-Semitism in British society, where I think I, as a very privileged kind of young person growing up in the 80s and 90s, kind of just didn't believe in it. On the other hand, that was because I was growing up in a suburb of London where nearly 90% of the people I met were also Jewish. So it never really, and that seemed to me to be completely normal. And I certainly had no idea, I think, that Jewishness was a minority in Britain, probably until I went to university. And my grandfather was particularly, I think, his identity was as someone who was British first and Jewish second. He never denied his Jewishness whatsoever, but Britishness, I think, was almost the more important to him. And he would often defend British kind of society against charges of anti-Semitism. On the other hand, then I think my mother actually would be much more alive to anti-Semitism, such that often I would be therefore arguing with her, sort of saying it doesn't exist, this is just paranoia, which is another of the tropes that Roth obviously talks about in the book, about this, you never know in perceiving anti-Semitism how far you are seeing the truth and how far you are being paranoid. This is clearly one of the sort of psychoanalytic categories of being Jewish. Um, and so now I think on rereading it, and I think, I, you know, the, I, similarly to me, this passage I think has haunted me. And now I kind of rather think, maybe I'm kind of glad that this passage exists. And in a sense, 
there it's a pity or it's um a gap in british literature of post-war kind of the post-war british novel there are no scenes of anti-semitism that i can remember that actually partly there are very few british jewish novelists uh certainly not in comparison either in amount or stature to the kind of american jewish tradition of malamud and roth and bellow and then other kind of immigrant novelists like singer and in one sense i think the roth is right because it is true that there is huge anti-semitism and what roth is doing in this kind of mad scene is i think just bring it to the surface and it's true that part of the joke is that generally in britain that kind of prejudice doesn't come to the surface or it's never would be enacted in that dramatic of fashion but it clearly exists and i think that now i sort of um think that it is a primal scene that is quite interesting i think for kind of contemporary british literature to think about like a really major moment of racial prejudice attacking a kind of wasp britishness in particular and the nature of identity so i think that what seemed to me to be fantastical now seems to me to be more a kind of wonderfully surreal or actually not even surreal attempt to get at something quite dark in british society does it change how you feel about the scene if you know that it actually happened happened to roth as he he claimed to his biographer that no no i was in the cannot with a blonde girl who was obviously not Jewish and the diners at the other table, he thought were freaking out seeing this mixed couple. And one woman said, this is disgusting. It's like, for me, it almost makes the scene less interesting if I think it's, it's actually, writing directly yeah. from his experience. Don't you think though, but that's the kind of particular general problem of relating biography to the work that's clearly one of Ross, you know, it's nothing to do with his Jewishness, but to do with his way of writing which is constantly to do this weird cartoonish version of autobiography all the time and so in one sense i guess it goes back to the but it's the problem of believability in anything so that it doesn't really matter whether it happened to him or not because the key issue is does it work artistically in the novel i think and i think it's certainly interesting that to me as a british jewish reader 30 years later or whatever reading it it didn't initially seem believable like i couldn't quite kind of track it as it were and now later on i think it does seem kind of believable and i think that or if not maybe no i don't even think believable is the point the point is does it express something about a kind of british blindness or aporia or repression and that i think is where there is something very interesting about maybe the american novel versus the british novel or in particular maybe american jewishness and british jewishness you know that certainly i mean we've discussed this ever since I first met you. The, I remember one thing that deeply shocked you was when you once came to our apartment and we had a Christmas tree. And you clearly thought, but I thought you were Jewish, so why is there a Christmas tree here? And I I know very few Jewish British Jewish friends who wouldn't have a Christmas tree. You know, they'd have to be super orthodox before that would not be a thing. Whereas it's true that in America it would be seen as madness to have a Christmas tree if you were Jewish. Which actually comes up in the counter life. Yeah. This idea of that a difference between British Jews and American Jews is American Jews just don't do it, by and large. Yeah. And also the idea yeah. of the carol service. I mean, my, my grandfather yeah. would go to carol services on Christmas Eve yeah. and clearly enjoy them and clearly see no, I don't know what the right word would be, no contradiction, no hypocrisy, no problem. Whereas, and again, that's part of, I think that in the entire chapter, it's called Christendom, um, of Roth going, or Zuckerman going to a carol service you know also then having an extremely anti-semitic conversation with his wife's sister 
it's interesting, which I had completely blocked out. It was only on rereading it that I kind of remembered it. That for me, the restaurant scene that kind of follows had totally obliterated this. But that equally seemed, and still actually seems weirdly, more unlikely that someone would be aggressively anti-Semitic in conversation to your brother-in-law, as it were. But there still seems to me now something very strong about it because I think that there is a way in which, and it's 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 a centuries-old basically debate in all of Jewishness that's always there about assimilation, and that Zuckerman in the book is clearly taken aback at what he clearly thinks of as British Jewish sort of over-assimilation that this has been this thing that is staring in plain sight has been kind of ignored or isn't, why should they not take offence? And he kind of grandly does take offence in the restaurant and does kind of make a scene. And that speaks to something I think very important, I think, which is that there is a way in which there's a certain version of British Jewishness. It's not the, you know, there's no such thing as a single version, but that certainly thinking of, say, my grandfather, he would have not, if that incident were possible within his life, he would not have done anything. He would have either pretended that he didn't hear or asserted that it was clearly not referring to him. Um, And so I think that that rhythm of disclosure and non-disclosure and of kind of what you make overt and not overt, which is obviously central to the way Roth writes, but I think is actually a very interesting challenge to a certain type of um, British novel as well. Elsewhere in Roth, he sometimes asks the question, you know, what would have happened to my family if we hadn't left Eastern Europe in the 19th century? And the answer is, you know, nothing. We would have been destroyed. Yeah. But here he asks the question, you know, in, in a sentence, you know, what would have happened, you know, sort of to me as a writer, if instead of going to New York, you know, we'd stopped in Liverpool, got off there, made our lives in England. And he doesn't really answer the question. But can you attempt, like, what yeah, what would Roth have been like if he'd been born in 1933 in Liverpool or North London? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, yeah. that the kind of tradition that he's part of in America isn't there. And one thing that's always struck me, though, is that it is there in terms of painters. Um, that There's something quite weird, I think, in Britain where there are really great painters of that generation, like Lucien Freud, uh, Kitai, and Frank Auerbach, say. And these are all major kind of very masculine talents. They're very comparable in a way to the sort of Bello, Roth, Malamud output. And so there is something, it's kind of, there is a, yeah, I am interested in the thought. I remember when I was starting out as a writer, I did have one idea of writing a counterfactual kind of history where there would be a great, you know, basically writing a fake biography of precisely as it were, what if a Roth were British rather than American. And I think certainly because that history is certainly that side of my family, they did get off at Sunderland. They didn't make it to New York, as it were, in the 19th century. And there's certainly part of me that has a fantasy where if only they had kept going and I could have been a, a New York writer. But then what's interesting about the painters we've just mentioned, like Auerbach um, and Lucien Freud, is actually how much, in a sense, it's not so much occluded their Jewishness, but were certainly interested in a kind of British version of it where it wasn't something necessarily you talked about. So Auerbach famously disliked the portrait um, given of him by W.G. Sebald, clearly because he thought that Sebald sentimentalized in some way his experience and that for him it was not something to be theorized in that way. And I think there is something interesting about the British construction of identity. Like if you look at probably two of the best post-war Jewish novelists who are British would be Muriel Spark and Anita Bruckner. In Spark's case, who 
fundamentally disowned any Jewishness um, and famously converted to Catholicism. And with Anita Bruckner, I think what's fascinating about her characters is that in many ways, once you kind of see them through a Jewish perspective, they are clearly in some way Jewishly inflected. Um, Ooh, in, in, in what way? Because I, I confess, I didn't realize she was well, Jewish often, until I read the obituary. Yeah, and so many of her characters are in some way, I think, known to be from immigrant kind of families. It's not always clear exactly how, but they may have come from Eastern Europe. And there's a general sense, I'd say, and I think that's something that's kind of interesting in constructing maybe another slightly different tradition of Jewish writing, of displacement. And that I think it's that kind of theme of simply not feeling exactly secure or not exactly at home where you're meant to feel at home that I think there's a kind of Jewishness to Bruckner's writing and that that's something also that is then much more common in other European writing to my mind than some American Jewish writing. Like which European writers are you thinking of? Um, well I don't know like one of my favorite say as it were Jewish writers but who in many ways isn't is say Natalia Ginsberg where Again, she never denied any kind of Jewishness, but for her, I don't see in the writing, Jewishness is not the kind of central exploration in the same way as it is for Roth or Bello. So she's much more interested both in a kind of Marxist construction of identity or a feminist one. And that while Judaism kind of or a Jewish kind of background sometimes features, it's not the sort of primary investigation. Or then another writer who I adore is Clarice Lispector who I think was Ukrainian originally um, before going immigrating to Brazil. And again, I think the themes, once you see them from a kind of Jewish post-Holocaust way, you can see that these narratives of almost psychosis or of displacement of feelings of almost homelessness in the writing can be seen through that kind of exilic kind of pattern. I'm not sure that's the most useful way of seeing them. And so I think that there's something interesting to me in a kind of I think the Roth model, the Bellow model, was so pervasive for a long while that it's important to now, I think, kind of recover this, what seems a slightly kind of more kind of disparate tradition or mode of Jewish writing in people like Bruckner, in Lispector, in Ginsberg. And there's part of me, because like, I guess my, my favorite of the American modernists, as it were, is actually Gertrude Stein. And there's something that to me is very interesting, how little like this kind of very patriarchal, filiated kind of tradition of Rothbello never even mentions her. And Stein, I think, is also interesting, though, because on the one hand, she's entirely out as a Jewish person and at the same time is famous for how much she kind of kept that almost out of the writing. Say, There's a big distinction, I think, between the way she actually was very comfortable openly talking about certain kind of lesbian issues and lesbian feelings that that part of her identity, I think she was able to kind of use, but actually the way she occluded her Jewishness, so that famously in like Wars I Have Seen, uh, which is an amazing memoir that she wrote, partly describing how she survived the Second World War. And what she never mentions is that her protectors were basically Nazis um, or Nazi collaborators. And there is something really strange, I think, about the way she does almost refuse to mention Jewishness. But I still think that as a model of kind of a way of writing where there is something to do with, I guess, a play with identity that to me seems fundamentally Jewish or certainly diasporically Jewish, which you see in Stein's writing. And I think that is then picked up by later writers, but 
it's kind of adjacent to the tradition we've been talking about. Yeah, that diasporic game playing with identity. Do you think that happens more with, with American writers than with British writers? Um, I think that the kind of games Roth plays are quite hard to imagine for a Jewish writer in Britain. And maybe it is because actually there was more prejudice in post-war society. And therefore, possibly there was more of a desire to fit in, as it were. So I don't know. It's kind of... I, it's one of those questions that almost is too gigantic, but it's clearly there is some social difference. But I think the social differences are also to do with different waves of immigration. And I think that's always interesting for any refugee people, as it were. There are always different kind of tempos and then often very different attitudes depending on when people came. Um, and actually, I remember one friend, a Jewish American novelist of our generation, actually saying to me recently that he thought that one of the reasons there was almost more of a tradition in America was that actually there were more Holocaust survivors who made it to Britain immediately after or sort of during like kind of and that therefore that they just they these were broken people as it were these were kind of people for whom there wasn't a live tradition around them that they were and so therefore there wasn't the same kind of idea of creating this culture. Um they just wanted to survive and kind of get some kind of normality. Whereas tended to be that, you know, in America, a lot of immigrants had already arrived in the early 20th century. And I don't know if that's part, you know, and there's obviously the other kind of large sort of structure to Jewish identity anywhere is obviously the relationship to Israel as well. And that's, I think, different in both places. And it's one of the things actually that I think Roth is brilliant on in The Counterlife is kind of his way of imagining New Jersey to Israel. Ooh, say say so, more about that. What, what is the difference? Um, I don't know what the exact difference is, but I think that I mean, it's interesting because I think in one sense, I think there's quite a close relationship between the Jewish community in Britain and Israel, that there's a quite a tradition of sort of summer kibbutzes, summer schools. Yeah, to think about the ways in which both American Jews, British Jews think about Israel, I think is really, you know, it's obviously far too large a topic to be generalized on. I think in some ways, clearly, Israel definitely occupies a larger place in the political imaginary of America more than it does in the political imaginary of, of the UK, I think. On the other hand, I think it does form a very strong relate part of the way the Jewish community in Britain, which is much smaller proportionately and literally than the Jewish community in America, thinks of Jewishness as well. So I think there's a weird, um, on the one hand, I think in general in America, Israel figures more highly. Um, but within the Jewish community, certainly here, it equally figures highly. But the thing that I think is interesting in the counter life in the way Roth treats Israel and the thing that is actually really, I think, still quite transgressive is, you know, this is a novel about different versions of a metamorphosis. How could you change your life, basically? And one of the ways of someone changing their life in the novel is that a New Jersey dentist basically goes to Israel and decides to stay and doesn't just want to stay in Israel, but actually wants to stay in the occupied territories. He wants to be basically an illegal settler in the West Bank. And then Zuckerman basically goes to see him. And I think the thing that's transgressive is to basically see the wish to move from New Jersey to Israel as just another subset of a larger structure, which is, do you want to sleep with someone who's not your wife? Or do you want to marry an English girl? These are all different versions of a counter life in this novel. And I think there's something wonderfully scandalous for a Jewish writer writing from within a Jewish community to kind of put the kind of 
Israeli position as just one, it, like to put it with the sexual options as it were. It's, um, I think there's something very comical about that and I think very interesting. It's funny, so, you know, when I first met you, this is almost 20 years ago, I think almost immediately we started discussing, like, what are the differences between British Jews and American Jews? I remember you told me that you'd put Bellow in your book, you know, Bellows and Politics, your first novel. And I remember, you know, wondering then, like, did you see yourself as part of that tradition of Jewish American writers? Mm, yeah, it's true. I have a character re- picking up Bellow in the middle of a sex scene. So there was a deliberately sort of both a homage and a kind of way of almost deflating that sense of a tradition, I think. Um, I think I've always been incredibly nervous of occupying any tradition. And so my Jewishness is Groucho Marx Jewishness. I don't know. No, I think that certainly more and more the kind of, you know, I think I've always been very preoccupied by the fact that Jewishness is so hard to define in any person that it's always different. Um, and so actually the line in the counter life that I think I always adored was um, a point in the counter life where Roth is at the wailing wall and someone is basically trying to get him to enter a kind of, I think it's a, is it a minion? I can't remember. It's like kind of, but basically is trying to get him to be more Jewish than he feels. And Zuckerman writes, you know, here we go. One Jew is about to explain to another Jew that he is not the same kind of Jew that the first Jew is. The source, this situation of several hundred thousand jokes, not to mention all the works of fiction. And I think I've particularly felt that because, you know, I'm half Jewish, but it's on my mother's side. And therefore to the Jewish community, I am Jewish. On the other hand, within that, I actually come from a very assimilated Jewish family where our kind of most recent immigrants are from the 19th century. So there are all these layers of Jewishness and non-Jewishness. My surname is not Jewish and therefore it's very easy to kind of pass as it were as non-Jewish. And I think, therefore, this question of how, like, what, what define how Jewish is, a, is is each individual Jewish person, has very much preoccupied me. And so, I certainly don't think I would want to be seen as a Jewish novelist. And I think that, on the other hand, I think what is quite important to my identity is being half Jewish. And in seeing Jewishness, I think for me, is a way of playing with identity, playing with boundaries, um, in a way that not necessarily recent political history has helped, but I think that that's my ideal of Jewishness. And so to be honest, actually, I think kind of Roth and Bellow were less important to me when I was beginning than European Jewish writers like Schultz, um, who I recently wrote for the paper about. And I think that, and it was to do with a kind of play with borders and also with literally with language in the sense that often these are writers who were forced to switch language or, for, you know, where the language in which you write wasn't necessarily exactly part of your identity so that there was this very fluid idea of being able to move across borders and across boundaries. And that, I think, has been the Jewish sort of tradition I've aspired to, so quite a kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, but a kind of promiscuous tradition rather than, I've always certainly found it also quite an overly patriarchal tradition and kind of, so for that reason, I think I've slightly tried to avoid it. But there is something... There's an energy that I do love, certainly, in something like The Counterlife. I guess the interesting thing would be also is like how far are Roth's experiments, what would it mean to describe them as Jewish? And I'm not really sure. Like, is there a Jewish tradition of writing that would encompass Roth and Schultz, as it were? Or, in fact, is Roth just as close to other European writers, like, I don't know, Chekhov or whoever? Or, in fact, 
is it really that he's an American writer and so he's as you know close to Hawthorne as he is to to Schultz? I don't know. You you need to answer that. Hmm. Well, I think what if you look at sort of early Roth, he's trying to write a novel out of Henry James, mm. and it doesn't work or, or work as well as his later books. And I think what he says is that he sort of needed Bellow. He needed to read, ah, this is a novel set in Chicago about people I know, and it works. Yeah. You know, I, I don't need to write about American wasps or English people to, to do a novel, that he, he did need to see it before he could do it yeah. himself. At the same time, though, you've written about Roth's relationship to Eastern European writers in a way that, that I find really interesting, how he, he took something from them that he needed that he couldn't just get from the British-American tradition. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why Roth, I think, is particularly fascinating that in the 70s, he both visited Eastern Europe, as it was kind of then called, and sort of he went across the Iron Curtain um, and then edited this really important series of, I think it's called Writers from the Other Europe, which was often the first place English-speaking readers could read Schultz, could read Daniel O'Keefe, could read Kundera, uh, could read Klima, and many others, I think, and, and Gombrowicz as well. And not only was he this kind of great editor, as it were, who would then champion these writers in kind of conversations and in interviews and essays, but it clearly had an influence on his writing, I think. And he certainly clearly found affinities I think with Kundera in both this very comedic use of sex as a kind of way into character and the kind of irony, I think, that was always there. Like one of the things that I think Roth obviously adored was the ability in a novel to say anything. And as long as you'd kind of ironized it somewhere else, that so you would you could exist in this amazing kind of jigsaw puzzle where no one could quite pin you down. Um, and I think that's something that he also found in, in Kundera. And I think also a sort of sense of the fantastical in people like Schultz as well, that although he always said he was a very realist writer, you know, there are cadenzas of crazy kind of monologue and invention that however much they are obviously always based in a certain kind of realism. Like I think that there's compared, say, to Malamud, he is a much more, I don't know, freewheeling writer. Yeah, I think yeah, toward the end of his career when he was giving lots of interviews, he said that actually he, he couldn't do a straight realist plot anymore that he needed to have a, a twist, a complication. Yeah, and there's often, I think, something almost like a fable. And, you know, like clearly he got more and more into Tolstoy as he was older as well, I think, and kind of that sense of a sort of almost fabular kind of structure to a novel is something that I think interested him as well. But it's interesting if, with these European writers, some of them are Jewish, some of them aren't. You know, it's not a kind of Jewishness, really, that I think is crucial there. I think it's something very exciting though in watching Roth slightly detach himself from the American scene in that period in the 70s and 80s that I think is very exciting in literary terms. But I think the other possibly most important discovery might be Witold Gombrowicz who is a Polish novelist that I really like and Gombrowicz's career very much sort of almost matches what Roth would later then have which was that Gombrowicz relatively young published a highly regarded book of short stories called Memoirs from My Time of Immaturity, which made him notorious in Warsaw literary circles, but also made him absolutely hated, and many people thought this book was absolutely terrible. And so his novel that followed, called Ferdy Durka, which many people think is kind of one of the great modernist novels of Polish literature, begins basically with a writer 
waking up and thinking I've just had the most terrible I will never I hate publication this is appalling like kind of everything has about publication is appalling because you have to read about yourself in the words of other people and you're deformed um and so this then becomes a mad kind of novel of um defamation where the narrator is then literally taken back to school and is treated like a child and so it becomes a surreal sort of picaresque novel but it's kernel the thing it clearly begins with is that publication is a trauma that no writer will ever recover from and clearly Roth had I think a very similar and very ambivalent reaction partly to something that had already I think happened even with Goodbye Columbus and other stories he published where almost immediately with his very first stories which now seem incredibly classical and if anything slightly boring in their kind of like you were saying like Henry Jamesy propriety but they were already seen as betrayals of the Jewish people that I think relatively still kind of close to the Holocaust there were people who just thought the only way Jewish people should be depicted within the Jewish community people thought the only way Jewish people should be depicted would be lovingly and with no possible comedy or irony because the last thing you wanted to do was give the anti-Semites more ammunition and Roth I think one of the things that is very charming about him is that he doubled down and continually through his career. So then he writes Portnoy, which is then obviously seen as even more of an affront um, to the ideal of the nice Jewish boy. Um, and then invents the Zuckerman kind of books, which are basically about becoming the author of Portnoy, which is called Karnofsky, which is a brilliant title, I think. And both how that, you know, it's very brilliant actually, I think, on what writing does to a family, but then it's also about what writing does to any community and how far you are betraying those around you and how far writing and belonging can ever actually be linked. And I think that idea of belonging, I think, is something that Roth is brilliant at. Like his, Because I think his deep theme isn't so much Jewishness, but he uses Jewishness as one example of this theme, which is where does anyone belong and what does it mean to belong to any people um, or can, you know, kind of what, possible meaning does the word we have and I think that Roth is constantly playing with the idea of what is sayable and the sayable is basically what can you say within a certain community and so for him that horizon of the Jewish community is always there but it is a very and again I guess that is something interesting because I think that is specifically American like I can't imagine a European Jewish novelist having that i mean i'm just thinking like daniel o'keefe say who's one of the writers in his series who wrote an extraordinary novel called hourglass which is about the death of Keish's father in in the holocaust but Keish again is half jewish interestingly so i have no idea if um, my canon is really just half jews and um and it's true that Keish was constantly attacked about in belgrade's literary circles and much not about his Jewishness, that, you know, it wasn't the Jewish community that was attacking him for whatever transgressions. Um, it was just the general literary community. So I think that the way in which Roth goaded and was, you know, and, and enjoyed goading a certain Orthodox American Jewish community, I think is fascinating, actually, for what he needed it to do. And therefore, kind of how far, however much he was, I think in many ways, a more cosmopolitan figure than, say, Bellow. He still is rooted, you know, he needed the Newark rabbis to both adore him and be exasperated. And then ultimately, in some sense, I feel like he forgives the rabbis, forgives his parents. I mean, sort of a, a book about, say, like, a plot against America, where it's an alternative history, but Roth is making the case 
like, look, you know, America didn't go fascist, but it could have. Mm. And here's a story that's so plausible seeming that it almost seems more real than what actually happened. You know, Charles Lindbergh becomes president and America has pogroms. And in that book, his parents, the paranoid Jews, are, are the heroes. Yeah. You know, they, they save their family. But, you know, it's interesting because one of yeah. Bellow's very first stories, you know, because there's that American novel, like, It Can't Happen Here. Um, the Sinclair Lewis. The Sinclair Lewis. Yeah. And then Bellow, one of his very first stories, which he never collected, was called The Hell It Can't. So it was a direct reply to the title of the Sinclair Lewis and is basically a kind of highly derivative Kafkaesque fable of basically a guy turning turning up in the middle of the night to arrest somebody. And what's interesting is the counterfactual. It's, I, I think it's interesting how far is Jewishness is another kind of psychoanalytic structure of Jewishness to be constantly running through your head the counterfactuals. And I think that's quite interesting of the sense of the lack of safety, as it were, that in some way, I'm sure pre-existed the Holocaust, as it were, but clearly that the Holocaust has made into something almost canonical for Jewish identity, I think, is this sense that you need to always know where you could flee to, as it were. And I think that it's interesting to me, this counterfactual imagination of like, what would the Roth who had ended up in Sunderland been, or what would the Roth who had um, been able to stay in Europe in the 30s been? I, I don't know, like, there's a kind of I think there's a larger interesting question of why is it that these counter kind of... Because, yeah, his his career is absolutely punctuated by counterfactual stories of what if Anne Frank was still alive, oh, which, which is incredibly funny. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> for people who haven't read it, um, it's Roth post-Portnoy, or in this case, Zuckerman post-Portnoy, essentially, thinking, you know, what could I do that would get me in the good books with my family, with the Jewish community? And it comes to him, I'm going to find Anne Frank. I'm going to marry Anne Frank. And then for Roth to write a novel about basically imagining what would it be like to have sex with Anne Frank is just the most perverse thing. When I read it, I thought I could imagine. And he pulls it off. And at the same time, I think what's remarkable is that Roth provides, I think, some of the best literary criticism that the diary of Anne Frank has ever mm. received. I mean, he makes the case for Anne Frank as a writer yeah. and shows how to do it. Yeah, that's completely true, actually. No, and that... I think it's so funny. I remember it's kind of where I remember one line in that where he says, you know, like, what could be the more perfect Jewish girlfriend than Anne Frank? Right. You know, how could your mother right. in any way, if you bring home Anne Frank, you know, you're, you've, you've succeeded. And it's so funny. I mean, the other figure that we haven't mentioned yet, but I think it's important because actually Roth, another of his counterfactual stories was about Kafka and what if Kafka had survived. And I think that Kafka seems to me to be another fascinating figure. And it's interesting to me the book I was writing on for the London Review when writing about Schultz was um, a book by a really very interesting writer, Benjamin Ballant, who wrote this book about basically not just a biography of Schultz, but actually about really where he belongs, because there was this large sort of political diplomatic argument about when some of Schultz's paintings were discovered, there was a they were basically stolen by Yad Vashem. And there was then a long diplomatic battle about where they kind of rightfully belonged. Right. If they belonged in Israel or if yeah. they belonged in the place it, where they'd the been painted. Pla even though the yeah. place where they were painted, A, was the villa of a, for of a Nazi and also in a highly contested kind of area, which was some partly Poland, sometimes Poland, sometimes Ukraine, sometimes Soviet kind of Russia. And so, um, but Balint's previous book was... Um, on a was about Kafka and it was about a different legal battle, which was about basically where Kafka's manuscripts should end up. 
which had been brought to Israel by Max Broad, his kind of executor, when Broad emigrated to Israel. And then there was a highly detailed problem that we don't need to go into involving kind of Broad and mistresses and secretaries and Judith Butler, incidentally, has written very well about this for, for the LRB. Yeah. You know, who, who owns Kafka? And I think this question of who owns Kafka becomes where does Kafka belong? And, like, and is he therefore post, you know, post the Holocaust? He never knew. Is he a Czech writer? Is he a German writer? Uh, is he an Israeli writer? And I think that one of the things that's always fascinated me with Kafka is precisely that his own Jewishness was clearly very complicated that at certain times he obviously felt a deep affinity to Palestine as it kind of was and Palestine that he felt for a moment that he wanted to maybe immigrate to. On the other hand, there are many anecdotes of Kafka sitting in these meetings of kind of Zionists and being absolutely silent and clearly not in any way really part of this movement. And there are these kind of, you know, this famous joke that I think I quoted in the piece on Schultz where he says, you know, what do I have in common with the Jews? I have hardly anything in common with myself. And so Kafka's incredibly nuanced and delicate idea of what it is to be a person, which is, I think, quite similar to the one the way Schultz was also thinking, that if you're that nuanced in your own self-critique, as it were, the idea of belonging to something as vast as a people is just too much to kind of contemplate. Um, and so one of the things that I think is interesting is how historically this large fracture, which is the Holocaust, has kind of made the interpretation of a sort of modernist Jewish canon very difficult because there is, on one hand, a highly nationalist Israeli sort of narrative that wants to secure anyone who kind of lived in Central Europe before the Holocaust is in some way, therefore, the only place they could really belong is Israel. And then I think I'm, I, I find that, you know, very antipathetic, basically, not just politically, but actually also as, as a kind of, in terms of literature, one of the things I think that is so interesting about these writers and that I think Roth is in many ways inherits is this deep kind of questioning of identity, um, beginning with the, the self. And so I, but it, this kind of question of where does a dead Jew belong, as it were, you know, which is, it seems to me um, clearly of more and more importance of kind of, because it's, the, it's basically just where does any Jewish person belonging can, and how far can you, place so you know like where would you want to be placed is really interesting no so it's funny like in the counter life as well like there's a lot of talk in israel in the israel chapter about like menachem begin and it's interesting i remember my grandfather saying like you know i would have happily shot Begin. you know he was a you know upstanding british man who just thought begin was a terrorist and whereas obviously to many Israelis and American Jews, Begin was much, you know, in the way like Roth describes him is as this kind of strong man who everyone finally kind of is standing up to for, you know, for the Jewish people. And so I think that it's never ending this issue, you know, basically, but which is why I think it's important to still explore it probably. So when I first met you almost 20 years ago, the conversation we, we started having is, you know, what are the differences between British Jews and American Jews? And you told me a joke, which Usually I don't remember jokes, um, but this one I remembered because I didn't get it. It actually didn't make sense to me because there's really no American Jewish equivalent. I found it again in Devorah Baum's book, The Jewish Joke, and I brought it in because I, I sort of want you to explain it to me. I, I don't entirely understand it. Okay. Okay. So this is how Baum tells it. And I can actually even remember some of the, the slight differences from the way you told it to me. A formerly religious young man is attending Oxford. 
when his father, with a long beard, skullcap, and side curls, comes to visit him. He is filled with shame and tells his father in no uncertain terms that he feels all his success at fitting in at one of Britain's elite institutions will be undone by the spectacle of difference. Wanting to aid his son, his father heads for a barber and has his side curls removed, his beard shaved off, and he even takes off his skullcap. At that point, his father bursts into tears. Profoundly moved, his son says, But father, I never meant for you to lose your identity entirely. I just wanted you to minimize your difference, not obliterate it. I'm sorry for the pain I've caused you. No, no, it's not that, says his father. I'm crying because we lost India. <laughs> so why is this? Yeah, I mean, unpack this for me. Help. I, I do remember this joke. It's not, I'm not arguing for this as the greatest of Jewish jokes, um, <laughs> but it is specifically a British Jewish joke. And I mean, on the very basic level, it's a joke about saying a British, you know, the, the speed of assimilation that is that is possible for a British Jew, basically, that's they can go so quickly from being the full orthodox item and then suddenly, you know, not so British that they are kind of in mourning for the loss of the colonies, as it were. So they've become a kind of wasp aristocrat, basically, in the space of one trip to the barbers. But I think it's also interesting. It's interesting, like, certainly, I feel like Devorah has given it a rather beautiful contemporary, the idea of, you know, I just want you to, like, the joke I kind of remember... He's certainly not saying I just want to minimize, you know, mm. I want to use minimize differences. It just said like, you know, I just wanted you to like, you know, have a little trim or something was how <laughs> I remember it. Um, the idea being that certainly that he misinterprets the tears, that he thinks the tears are for the loss of the Jewish identity. And in fact, they're tears for something that shows that this old man has become so British completely already that he's indistinguishable from a from a wasp. Um, but I think the almost the most interesting is is, is the shame at the beginning and that is clearly, I mean, it's interesting because I think that is actually shared. I think Roth talks about this as well. He clearly feels very ambivalent about his new family in the sense of he does want to become the kind of clean cut intellectual and is clearly slightly embarrassed of both, I think, in class terms of his father and almost in, in kind of, I don't know what, the, you know, in, in Jewish terms as well. I think the difference, though, is that in the in this British joke, um, the shame is immediately taken up by the father and sort of cancelled out. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think the problem with the joke as well is actually the punchline, which I think I'm sure it's a it, I, I think it's a very old British Jewish joke as well. So because I, I seem to remember it was my grandfather who told me this joke, mm -hmm. and it made much more sense to me as told to by my grandfather because the idea of mourning the colonies is hardly a kind of thing that anyone would be mourning now. And so I think that's part of the problem with this joke is that actually it's its punchline is too old fashioned. But the structure of the joke seems to me to be actually very still speaks to something in British Jewishness, which is the self mockery of the highly assimilated almost that they they find it funny that they're so assimilated, but aren't going to give it up. Whereas I think there's a certain and I think that this then goes to, you know, that this is actually this it's not even a debate, but like the kind of argument that slightly now exists, I think, between American Jewishness and English Jewishness or British Jewishness is actually replicating an argument that happened in Central Europe before the war, you know, that it was this argument about how far will assimilation help you? And then that argument obviously then gets exported to via the Zionist movement to, to Israel. 
and there's a sort of idea i think in certain one strand of thinking would be well assimilation didn't help you thought it was all going to help you thought you could fit in you can never fit in like they know who you are and i think that's something that roth is kind of attacking in the counterlife is to sort of putting pressure on that idea like how far is assimilation a good thing and the problem i think for roth and maybe for me is that while that may be true the obverse is a kind of nationalism that's so grotesque that that's not just you know that's even less desirable i mean i guess one of the interest to me of having this kind of conversation and i think it's what then gets dramatized in some of ross fiction here is precisely that these are insoluble contradictions um that you can't settle anywhere um, which is why i think it's so interesting to explore in fiction or anywhere um but it's also why you can't ever kind of come to rest on this that there is no good answer and i think that that was one of the reasons why the council i feel still so alive is because he's cycling through different points of view on this question of what is an identity is being jewish a race is it being is it just a religion is it just is it a culture um and i think that's also one of the fascinating problems of jewishness why jewishness is always such a kind of interesting thing is it's not just a religion as it were and equally and it's why there can be so much critique of who is the true jew in the room as it were is because there are so many different ways you can say that it's you know the, so many ways of defining what jewishness is i mean roth says or zuckerman says in the counter life that you know being in britain made me a jew <laughs> what did you make of that well, I think, and I see what he means. In a way that being in Newark, you know, hadn't done it. You know. Yeah, but that's always true, isn't it? That a kind of certain otherness. I mean, one thing that might also be true, you see, is, is simply demographically, it is rarer to be Jewish in Britain. So I think than it is certainly in an urban area of you know, New Jersey. And so I think that that confrontation with suddenly re- being revealed as, as, as in some way other is interesting and also they're having you know it's not as if there's no anti-semitism in america you know and like i think it's more that there's a larger community maybe and so there's a kind of um i don't know what do you think well i did you feel jewish when you moved to britain yes i I, more than you had yeah Yeah. And, and i was i was surprised by that i keep thinking there's a moment in james wood's novel upstate in which a character who's english not jewish goes to america and he's talking to a young man, and the line in the novel is that this man, who's American, has the confidence that the Englishman associates in England with aristocrats, and in America associates with Jews. <laughs> and, and that seemed right to me. Yeah, yeah I, I did feel that there was a, a difference between American Jews and British Jews, and I wondered if, it had, if James was right, that it had to do with confidence, that in America, in some way, do Jews feel sort of ownership over the the culture that yeah. to, to be american sometimes is to be jewish i mean is that true that like yeah. would do you think a non-jewish person would think that i don't know in america you might have to be english to and, step back and yeah. see it but i guess what's interesting as well and which i don't think is there like one thing that i find lacking in roth is that the sense of jewishness occludes all other identities as it were in the sense that he there isn't really a sense of black experience in the novels there isn't and in the counter life the thing that is deeply absent is any sense of Palestinian kind of voice in this novel that is full of competing voices. It does seem strange to me that you don't hear a Palestinian voice. 
And I wonder if also so that there was a way in which the Jewish voice in that era in America did have a huge authority. And in a way, what's possibly good is that it's now more being seen as one voice among many and also having its own power in some in many ways. And so I think that's also, you know, where it becomes very interesting politically is, you know, the sense of what is being attacked if you're being attacked as, as someone who's Jewish. Um, but in terms of, the, of Britain, yeah, I think, it, you know, and, and I guess the, the thing is that I think these conversations are impossible without also inflecting them in class. And I think that's where then we could have a whole series, you know, like the, the kind of then the complexities of the British kind of attitude to class. I think it's interesting how little British culture of the same era did address Jewishness. Like, it's interesting. Like, what comes to mind is, say, there's a Jewish character in, you know, Chariots of Fire, as it were. Mm. And I do remember watching that when I was young, watching it with my grandfather, as it were. And so I'm not sure we really talked about the Jewishness of, as it were, the main character. But the kind of, the not running on the Sabbath, as it were, that kind of, um, isn't that? Oh, that's no, a Christian no, character that's Christian, who does it, who won't run on Sunday. But there's something else about the Jewish, or is it just that we see... Cambridge Dons being very anti-Semitic, that the Jewishness is addressed slightly there. And I think it's, but actually still, what is interesting, yeah, is actually if there's a religious conflict in that, it's it's Christian. It's not, um, there's no crisis of conscience in terms of Jewishness. Right, it's not the Jewish baseball um, player deciding not to pitch on Yom Kippur. Yeah, but it is um, interesting that kind of Jewishness plays a part in that movie just as something that's kind of deeply part of Middle England culture, as it were, that movie. And it's interesting kind of, but how little actually really Jewishness features in general, I think, in British writing. But maybe there is a kind of denial. I mean, it's interesting, like, it took, like, if, you know, a writer like Virginia Woolf, say, who is nakedly anti-Semitic, both in the diaries and in the actual novel, so it's not like it's just a privately expressed um, thing. And I think it's interesting how that gets treated as well, where it's, I don't know, I... I can't even think of the right way of describing it because it's not ignored, it's not denied, and at the same time, is it seen as offensive as maybe it should be? I don't know. But then maybe that's also true of American writers because I feel like, say, Gatsby is a very anti-Semitic novel as well, but it's still canonical. Uh, it does interest me that Roth, for instance, didn't like Lena, was always quite rude about Fitzgerald. Oh, was he? Um, I didn't know which that. Which always confused me and it only occurred to me recently that I was thinking, I wonder if it is actually that he was very alive to anti-Semitism and was therefore not going to... But could be a made-up theory but i think there's a beauty i think what i want to defend i guess is that you see i think that I f it feels to me like there are weak and strong forms of every point in this spectrum and so something like assimilation can be seen as in many ways a terrible thing like a way of denying your identity and it can also be seen as a wholly correct kind of multiplicity and refusal to be just one thing um, and I think that this is where, in a way, it kind of comes back to some very old-fashioned for me, kind of almost modernist idea of the novel as a form, is that one of the reasons I think I grew up loving novels was precisely because they could hold so many contradictory statements, that they were a place for the holding of contradictory statements. And in that sense, kind of, what's why Jewishness is such a useful subject for a Jewish novelist but it's it's kind of almost it's like which comes first. Like it seems to me that the kind of ideal I took from I think initially Central Europe, but also from American novelists as well, was of this use of voice and of voice throwing and of kind of thinking you can say anything, which in some ways to me is linked to assimilation. It's linked to 
a version of identity that refuses to be limited to a single thing. Adam Thurwell, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can read all of Adam's essays in the LRB in our archive, which is on our website, lrb.code.uk, as well as read or listen to Judith Butler's essay, Who Owns Kafka? You can find those links in the description.